Today's dead idea, well, we're on part two of ginormous stone circles. The idea that building a giant stone hockey rink is a good way to spend your time. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm BT Newber, but you can call me Brandon. With me again is my co-host for the day, Andre Solo. Hey, everybody. Yeah? Who has himself helped to erect a megalith? Check out our last episode for the story on that. It was definitely erect. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so last time... Okay, guys. Last time, we did our homework last time, right? Now, now it's playtime, Okay. So we're going to have some fun today. We're going to look at some of the nutty and some of the less nutty um, ways people have tried to explain the mystery that is Stonehenge, okay? Um, we're taking excerpts, starting with the Romans and following up. We'll get as far as we can through history, hopefully through modern day. We'll see how far we get here, okay? And this is going to be good because we're actually enjoying a couple of Drews while we do this. Yeah. I know that uh, Brandon likes to do kind of a, a fake plug sometimes. Fake as if plug. we have a sponsor. We don't. And we don't have a sponsor. <laughs> but this is kind of a real plug for me because uh, the beer we're drinking today is from Bad Weather Brewing, uh -huh. uh, which is, which is local. local in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah. Um, and actually, my girlfriend grew up with the guy who opened this brewery. Ooh. Yeah, that's at their grand opening last summer. Uh, they make great beer. They have pretty much every variety you could imagine. Uh, we're drinking some blonde ale and some red IPA today. So yeah. if you, it's good, it's good. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's good. So if you get a chance, uh, check out Bad Weather Brewery. Yeah. And just remember that they are not our sponsor. Yeah, they are not our sponsor. <laughs> but Bad Weather, if you really want to. If you're listening. Yeah. yeah we uh, like your growlers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So, um, yeah, so we're going to talk about this. And, and you know... I also just want to get out of the way. We talked about this a lot last, last episode, but let's just remind our listeners that no matter what theories and ideas that you hear today, we all can agree that we all know it was aliens. It was aliens. It was, it was yeah. definitely aliens. aliens. Right? Let's just get that out of the way. Right. right? Okay. So definitely it was aliens. Right. <laughs> it was not aliens. But we'll, we'll argue loudly over whether they were from like Venus or yeah. from a different solar system. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So our, our, our theme, our kind of cipher for the day that's going to lead us through all of these um, views on Stonehenge is a quote from uh, an archaeologist and writer named Jaqueta Hawk, who said, every age has the Stonehenge it deserves or desires. Ooh. So in other words, every age looks at Stonehenge and sees what it wants to see. And it's like the Rorschach oh. test of ancient monuments, right? <laughs> and we're going to see a lot of that. Well said, Jaquetta Hawk. Yeah. Yeah. Jaquetta Hawk. Or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, it's but... It's a cool name. Yeah. So, let's start us off. Okay, so, in terms of literature, so writing, this is long after Stonehenge was, was totally done and is not even... Um, it's no longer being constructed. All that's done, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of writing, it first shows up in a Roman writer named... Diodorus, I think okay. that's how you pronounce it. I like to I like to say Diodor or Diodorus in nice. my head because it just sounds, sounds like a more better like a name. Harry Potter character. But it, it was probably Diodorus, I right, imagine. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is the first century BCE. He's a Roman, and he's writing in the Bibliotheca Historica, Book Two, um, and he describes something up in this place up north there called Hyperborea. And he describes a certain kind of temple. He doesn't mention it as Stonehenge, obviously. Um, but scholars um, speculate on this, maybe he refers to it. Okay, so here's a what A lot he of says. today's show will be speculation. There's going to be a whole lot of... <laughs> I don't think there's any going to be any difference between speculation and non-speculation. It's just right. all it's like all... one great big grain of salt today. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, Diodorus says... Now, for our part, since we have seen fit to make mention of the regions of Asia which lie to the north, we feel that it will not be foreign to our purpose to discuss the legendary accounts of the Hyperboreans, which is the best name. I wish it was still called Hyperborea. Yes, I would yeah. move there. Yeah, great. I assume I need a sword, but... Yeah, great. Screw Great Britain. It's, yes. it's great it's Hyperborea from yes. now on, okay? Yeah. All right, so of those who have written about the ancient myths, Hecateus and certain others say that in the regions beyond the land of the Celts, and from the Romans' perspective, the Celts are like the Gauls. So that's like right. France, France region, right? right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's yeah. correct. 
Okay, so beyond the land of the Celts, there lies in the ocean an island no smaller than Sicily. This island, the account continues, is situated in the north and is inhabited by the Hyperboreans, who are called by that name because their home is beyond the point where the north wind, Boreas, blows. And so hyper, like above and bore. Boreas, yeah, that's yeah, it. Right. Hyperboreas, yeah. Which I love the idea that they're so far north that actually there's no north wind anymore. Like you pass the north wind guy's yeah. house oh, yeah. and you're like in his backyard. Yeah, then you yeah. just like in void outside the galaxy, right? You're it sounds really pleasant space. weather. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the island is both fertile and productive of every crop, and since it has, an, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and since it has an unusually temperate climate, it produces two harvests each year. Moreover. The following legend is told concerning it. Leto, who was born on this island, and for that reason Apollo, a deity, and remember the name Apollo, we'll explain why that's important later, Apollo is honored among them above all other gods, and the inhabitants are looked upon as priests of Apollo after a manner, since daily they praise this god continuously in song and honor him exceedingly. And there is also on the island both a magnificent sacred precinct of Apollo and a notable temple, which is adorned with many votive offerings and is spherical in shape. Hmm. Furthermore, a city is there which is sacred to this god, and the majority of its inhabitants are players on the cithara, which is a musical instrument, and these continually play on this instrument in the temple and sing hymns of praise to the god glorifying his deeds. I love these Roman accounts of things because yeah. he's really doing his best to give you like history and geography, mm -hmm. but it's just so made up. It's, right. yeah, it's like, oh yeah, if you keep going north past past the Celts and then mm -hmm. past the north wind, uh -huh. eventually you get to a place where there's just food twice a year. Like they have all these crops <laughs> yeah. and grow anything they want and all they do all day is just jam out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For yeah. Apollo, you yeah. know. Well, what, how else are you going to get Roman armies to go there to conquer it, right? <laughs> you got to make it sound good. You can good. all have your own Scythera once we take this <laughs> island. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so so the key points here are, right, the, the, the precinct that is spherical in shape, which is dedicated to Apollo, right? Now, right. Apollo is, uh, well, a Greek god, but the Romans kind of adopted him. And and uh, key to that is Apollo, among other things, is a god of healing, okay? And we have accounts um, later, which we'll see, which associate Stonehenge with healing. And in fact, there's a modern, there's some modern scholars, uh, I think Wainwright and Darville, who spec they theorize that um, Stonehenge was a place of pilgrimage uh, for healing purposes in kind of the same way that Lord's Cathedral is. Oh, cool. Yeah, so maybe there's a connection there. The reason why um, Diodorus is saying Apollo, which is not even a British deity, right? This is like standard practice right. um, back then. He was actually, well, we call it the Interpretatio Romana, which carried on from the Interpretatio Graeca, mm -hmm. the Greek tradition, which basically meant everybody else's gods are just like ours, but poorly understood. So we're going to call them by our names and be done with it. Right? right. So, so here we see looking at somebody else's culture and just totally seeing what you want to see. First right. of all, we're just straight up calling, okay, they got a healing god? Boom. That's Apollo. Apollo right? That's Apollo. <laughs> also, like you said, hey, this is like we could have a summer home there. We definitely want to see this over there. This sounds great. Let's imagine this nice place where you can <laughs> Right. Yeah. So you're seeing in Stonehenge what you want to see, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. True. Um, next in history... Um, this is not a, a reference to Stonehenge exactly, don't mention Stonehenge, um, but we get um, Julius Caesar, um, who conquered the Gauls, of course, and made a little some forays over into Britain. Right. Um, and just the interesting part here is that he, he describes uh, Britain as the origin of the Druid religion, in his Ooh. opinion. Right. Um, eh, but, and he says talks some stuff about that, we don't need to get into it, but a lot of it scholars now suspect it's pretty much um, propaganda right. yeah. yeah so so but but they're they're mentioning the druids and things like that because the druids are around at this time. yes yes unlike yeah. unlike when stonehenge was built as we right. discussed last time there were no druids when stonehenge, stonehenge was built stonehenge was not built by druids but now like you know two thousand years after stonehenge was built yeah. there's druids all over the place up there right yeah okay so speeding along we now advance quite a ways to the year 1130 
Oh, okay. Okay, That's and this different. is Henry of Huntington is the first to write about the monument. Um, and then just a little snippet there. And then now here we get to something juicy here. We get we get to have a little story time here next. Okay, just shortly after Henry of Huntington, circa 1136, we get Geoffrey of Monmouth, mm. who writes the Historia Regia Britannia, or I think that's like History of the British Kings, or British Royal Line, something yeah, like that. sounds right. Yeah. Now, so, is it Monmouth or Monmouth? I never, I never you would sure. know way better than me. I wouldn't. I, I wish I could tell you. I also don't know if it's Geoffrey or Jeffrey. Oh, jo let's go with Geoffrey because it's Game Joffrey's, of Thrones. Oh, it's so much better, right? <laughs> Because it's G-E-O, kind, of, right. kind of a spelling. Okay. All right. Also of interest here is that Joffrey, after he writes this, in which he describes Stonehenge, it's definitely Stonehenge here at this point. Um, a little while after that, his writing gets a little popular, gets over into France. There's this guy named Robert Wace in France who translates it into French, calls his the Roman de Brut, takes a little bit of liberties with it, changes some interesting things, which I'll mention at a point in the story. Hmm. Okay, so here's our story time, yes. Andre. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. I want to hear what yeah. Joffrey says. Are you, are you like sitting like Indian style, like crisscross applesauce? Oh, yes. Yeah, all right, awesome. Yeah. Okay, so the story, the story kicks off with King Aurelius Ambrosius, okay? And this is, we hear this name associated with Arthur a little bit. If you, if you dig into the Arthurian legend a little bit, you hear this, okay? And in this version, in Joffrey's version, the the relationships here is Aurelius Ambrosius at this time is king, okay? His brother is named Uther Pendragon, okay? But he's not king right now. He's kind of his brother. He just seems to boss around. And then Uther is Arthur's father, okay? But Arthur's not actually part of this story. Merlin is, however. Excellent. Yeah. This is like the first appearance of Merlin kind of in this version, too. I'm a much bigger fan of Merlin than Arthur, anyway. Yeah. Like, this is almost Arthur's like, just like one more dude who can swing it so hard, but yeah. Merlin, come on. Yeah. 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 This is like Merlin's origin story here. Yeah. This is like issue one of the Merlin comic book right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So King Aurelius Ambrosius has just defeated the rampaging Saxons uh, led by a man named Hengist, who has been invading the British lands, right? And so the land is just totally burned over, ravaged, and he goes about reestablishing order in the land and rebuilding things, rebuilding churches, because of course he was Christian. Of course. Of course. <laughs> right. Joffrey was Christian, so obviously he was Christian too. So anyway, uh, he's rebuilding stuff. All right, so Joffrey relates. He next went on to Winchester to restore it the same as the other cities, which he had restored, and when he had there established, I love that, just established, um, establish, not established, but okay, right. I'm geeking out way too much on that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and when he had there established all that had to be established toward the restoration thereof, by advice of Bishop Eldad, he went unto the monastery nigh Kerkaradoc, that is now called Salisbury. So we're getting into oh, our. Okay. This is that land, the area of Britain that the Stonehenge Salisbury Plains are where Stonehenge. That's is. where it is. It. Where the earls and princes lay buried, whom the accursed Hengist had betrayed. There was there a convent of three hundred brethren upon the Mount of Ambrius, who is who, as is said, was the founder thereof in days of old. When he looked around upon the place where there lay dead, he was moved to pity and tears began to flow. At just, last, just to be clear, so all these dead are laying there because wasn't there a big massacre that Hengist did? Yeah, yeah. So there's this war and yeah, this is people slain in this in this right. war, basically. Okay. Yeah. And so he's he's basically pitying all the his side that right. got killed, right? At last he fell to pondering within himself in what wise he might best make the place memorable for worthy of remembrance did he deem the green turf that covered so many noble warriors that had died for their country. Okay, so he wants to build a monument to the right. dead. Right. So it's like a we, we shall never forget kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so he wants to build this monument. He goes on. Accordingly, he called together from all quarters the master craftsmen in stone and wood and bade them put forth their utmost skill to contrive some new kind of building that should stand forever in memory of men so worthy. But all of them, mistrusting their own mastery in such a matter, were only able to meet him with a nay. They just straight up said, no, to the king. Yeah, 
This is like the no. most lucrative government contract yeah. that's ever been handed like, out. And like, no, I can't do it, Sarah. I can't. No. No, no way. <laughs> it's too much. Oh, the pressure. Yeah. I just can't handle the pressure. <laughs> okay. Whereupon Tremonus, Archbishop of Carleon, came unto the king and saith he, If man there be anywhere strong enough to carry out this ordinance into effect, let Merlin, yes. Vortigern's prophet, set hand thereunto. For well I wot that never another man in thy kingdom is there that is brighter of wit than he, whether it be in foretelling that which shall be, or in devising engines of artifice. Now this is where I picture the story cuts to like a, a tavern where Merlin is just getting <laughs> wasted, you know? And a messenger just comes in like, like, you're what? needed in the capital. He's like, me? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm nobody, right? right. Okay, he, so he says, bid him come hither, he's telling this to the king, bid him come hither and set his wits to work, and I warrant he shall build thee a memorial to last. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so this seems to be, like, the first time that Merlin hits the king's radar here, right? So, um, uh, so the king starts asking around, where is this Merlin guy? And uh, he searches all over, he's finally brought to the king, and the king starts asking him to tell the future. Because, obviously, that's the most interesting part about this guy. Right. Tell the future? Well, you kind of want to test the guy, too. Yeah, you well, know? Well, yeah that makes sense. Right? Yeah. yeah. And they, they did kind of put some stock in this, probably, back then, right? Uh, sure. So, yeah. yeah. So, okay. And then Merlin gives a pretty ballsy reply to the king, right? Okay, and I don't know if the king was as big back then or what, but he, okay. So he gives this ballsy reply. He says, <clears throat> Mysteries of such kind be in no wise to be revealed save only in sore need. For, and I were to utter them lightly or to make laughter, the spirit that teacheth me would be dumb and would forsake me in the hour of need. So again, he's saying, nay, yeah. <laughs> no. So I, I love this idea. So they've heard that this is the brightest man in the realm who can foretell the future, knows all these men. They bring him before the king, and the king says, like, oh, I hear you can tell the future. Show us what you got. And Merlin's like, nah, if, it's not worth my time. If this is, well, I don't do it for, like, for show, right? Yeah. Like, I'm only going to do it if it's serious. Or is he covering his ass? Because he doesn't uh, really. Well, can't, can't really tell the future if he's if he's caught in some if he doesn't quite get it right, right, whatever. Like now, now he's you know the king's wrath could fall upon him, right? right? Yeah. This is not just village wenches that he's trying to impress at this point, you know, right? Yeah, okay. He's gonna level up his country yeah. too. Again, yeah. the pressure, right? <laughs> he's totally choking. <laughs> Merlin is choking. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Oh, by the way, the king is totally cool with what he says. He's like, okay, you don't have to tell the future. <laughs> right. We don't want to upset, upset your spirits anymore. But, but then he does tell him about this memorial idea that he has and that he wants him to build it. Okay, and, and here, Merlin says, If thou be fain to grace the burial place of these men with a work that shall endure forever, send for the dance of the giants that is in Calarius, a mountain in Ireland. And the giant's dance was for a long time the name that they had for Stonehenge. Right. So, Dance of the Giants equals Stonehenge. Meaning because the stones are like the giants and they're in a circle because they, they would dance in a circle. Mm -hmm, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea. Yeah, so, it was, so we figured it out. Stonehenge was actually uh, an ancient discotheque. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a giant rave party. Yeah. Literally for giants, yeah. a rave party. Giant rave. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, totally. I could see them with their kind of like glowing, you know, arm rings and whatnot. Right. Neck torques that glowed. Yes. Right? <laughs> that was more the Celts. No Celts involved in building a Stormhenge. Okay. <laughs> Just get that out of But the giants were Celts. The gi <laughs> Well, they're <laughs> Irish here. so I Right, they yes. certainly, yeah. yeah. So in his, Joffrey thinks they're coming from Ireland. Okay. Right. Anyway, for a structure, this is Merlin talking, for a structure of stones is there in Ireland that none of this age could raise, save his wit were strong enough to carry his art. So I love that he got that right. He's like, none of you suckers could build something right. like this. This is from an earlier era. Yeah. Or at least someone as smart as me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm, I'm different. For the stones be big, nor is there stone anywhere of more virtue, and so they be set up round this plot in a circle, even as they be now there set up, here shall they stand forever. Okay. Until the next wizard shows up and is like, let's move these. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And this is where the king starts to get incredulous, though. He's like, wait a minute, what? Right, okay. 
So at these words of Merlin, Aurelius, the king, burst out laughing. Wow. <laughs> and quoth he, But how may this be that stones of such bigness and in a country so far away may be brought hither as if Britain were lacking in stones enow for the job? Whereunto Merlin made answer, Laugh not so lightly, king, for not lightly are these words spoken, for in these stones is a mystery and a healing virtue against many ailments. There's Ooh. the association of Stonehenge with, with healing. healing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So at least at Joffrey's time, 1136 or something we said, right. yeah, they're thinking some kind of healing connection there. Yes. Okay. Um, Merlin continues to explain about Stonehenge and its healing properties. Is this about like inflammation, like chronic inflammation, and like you have to? If so, then it's then it's giant inflammation, <laughs> meaning meaning the giants have inflammation, right? Because he continues, giants of old did carry them from the furthest ends of Africa and did set them up in Ireland, what time they did inhabit therein, and unto this end they did it, that they might make them baths therein, whensoever they ailed of any malady. For they did wash the stones, and pour forth the water into the baths, whereby they that were sick were made whole. So basically, now we've figured it out, Stonehenge was an ancient hot tub. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's right. perfect. I will say, I love that this is actually very consistent from the 1130s with like folklore in even into the 20th century. Because like every parish, every village, every part of Ireland has like some well or uh -huh. some old stone something mm -hmm. where that stone is supposed to be the stone that will heal you. And people will literally yeah. go and like take the stone, take it home, do the little like prayers or whatever over the person who's sick and then right. go and put it back where it came from. And it's like water, a big version of that. Yeah, and water was very big for Celtic yes. religious beliefs too. Right. Like sacrificing um awesome swords, just tossing them into the river. Yeah. That was your form of church. So like the idea of like you go to the sacred stone, you dump water on it, you take the water from the stone. So now it's essentially got the stones like magic in it and mm -hmm. you bathe in that water that would completely match with like folklore of the British Isles right on. that's kind of cool yeah right on okay so Merlin continues moreover they did mix confections of herbs with the water whereby they that were wounded had healing for not a stone is there that lacketh in virtue of leechcraft excellent in other words leechcraft being medicine medicine yeah. yeah when the Britons heard these things they bethought them that it were well to send for the stones and to harry the Irish folk. I love that they have to harry them. They can't just <laughs> They're not going to give it up willingly. Yeah, they can't yeah. just ask. <laughs> like, what would you trade for, like, a healing right. bath no. circle? And to harry the Irish folk by force of arms if they should be minded to withhold them. At last, they made choice of Uther Pendragon, the king's brother, with 15,000 men to attend to this business. They made choice also of Merlin, so that whatsoever might have to be done should be dealt with according to his wit and counsel. Then, as soon as the ships were ready, they put to sea and make for Ireland with a prosperous gale. Okay, so they so they go off to Ireland. They they ship off to Ireland. Uh, they're try to they're going to try to nab the stone circle called the Giant's Dance, right? But the local king in Ireland, uh, Gilliman, catches wind of this and he freaks out, right? Because there's fifteen thousand men coming across from right. Britain. And well, if we're like, being honest about the numbers, like yeah, probably 150 not men. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. You know. probably more, yeah. But, yeah, okay. So in the right. story, 15,000 men, right? right? Um, so, of course, he figures the Britons are invading, so he pulls together a huge army. But when he finds out that all they want are these big-ass stones, he's like LMFAO, right? He's just like... <laughs> He's just like, what the hell are these Britons thinking? Okay. Which should be the first hint that they are not really healing stones. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, oh, you right. want those old things? Yeah, yeah, I was trying to get rid of them anyway. Right, so Joffrey continues. And when he had learned the reason wherefore they had come, he laughed and saith unto them that stood by, no wonder the craven Saxon folk. I thought there, Hengist was a Saxon folk, but right. okay, I don't know. I'm getting a little confused there. But no wonder the craven Saxon folk were strong enough to lay waste the island of Britain when the Britons themselves are such gross witted wise acres. Oh, I get it. He's <laughs> saying if these, yeah, okay, the Saxons if, were kick your ass because you guys are so dumb you'll go and take a few. Oh, stones. yes, that's yeah, right. Okay, right. yeah, I get it now. Yeah. You're right. Okay. 
Who hath ever heard of such folly? Are the stones of Ireland any better than those of Britain that our kingdom should thus be challenged to fight for them? Arm yourselves, men, and defend your country, for never while life is in me shall they carry off from us the very smallest stone of the dance. <laughs> so he's like, he's like, that's ridiculous. You guys are idiots running these stones, but we'll defend them yeah, with our lives. They're no better than any stone, right. but you're not getting You're not getting them. one pebble out of here. <laughs> well, that does kind of match the Irish spirit. I'll, I'll give him that. Okay. <laughs> So Uther, accordingly, seeing that they were all ready to fight, fell upon them straight away at the double quick. Forthwith the Britons prevailed, because of course. Right, yeah. <laughs> and his Irishmen, all cut up and slain, forced Gilliman to flee for his life. Aww. Yeah. When they had won the day, they pressed forward to Mount Kilarius, or Kilaras, I'm not sure. And when they reached the structure of stones, rejoiced and marveled greatly. Now here is where Merlin just decides to be a dick because he can. Okay. this is almost this is like classic nerd like superiority here or or maybe if you want to do the underdog card maybe this is revenge of the nerds because the rest of these guys are probably the jocks right all right, the warriors right, course, right. Yeah. yeah okay so merlin <clears throat> whilst they were all standing around merlin came unto them and said now my men try what ye can do to fetch me down these stones then may ye know whether strength avail more than skill or skilled and strength. <laughs> Thereupon, at his bidding, they all with one accord set to work with all manner of devices and did their utmost to fetch down the dance. Some rigged up huge hawsers, whatever those are, some set to with ropes, some planted scaling ladders, all eager to get done with the work, yet, nevertheless, was none of them never a whit the forwarder. Which is now going to be my phrase that I'm going to Never use. I, I'm going to make it a goal to use that this week in actual <laughs> conversation. Never a wit the forwarder. Okay, so Merlin's just like eating this up, right? He's laughing his ass off. <laughs> and then, it, then of course, then, it, then it's his turn, right? And this is kind of interesting because here's where the French translation comes in. Um, because um, in the French translation, Merlin uses magic to move the stars. Excellent. But here, let's check it out. Okay, so and this is Joffrey now. And when they were all weary and spent, Merlin burst out on laughing and put together his own engines. Nice. Okay, so he's using machinery. Yeah. Yeah. And engines in this case could mean like a set of levers or some kind of pulley mm -hmm. system. Not yeah. necessarily like he's got a steam engine. Yeah. 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 No, that's right. Thanks for clarifying that. Right. So like uh, when you were to, going to like siege a castle or town, um, your catapults and, right. and those sorts of things, those that's what they engines. were thinking of as Works of engines. engineering. Yeah. yeah. Engineering. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <clears throat> But it was alien, seriously. I gave him engines. <laughs> alien <Yeah>. engines. <laughs> At last, when he had set in place everything whatsoever that was needed, he laid the stones down so lightly as none would believe. And when he had laid them down, bade carry them to the ships and place them inboard. And on this wise did they again set sail and returned unto Britain with joy, presently with a fair wind making land, and fetching the stones to their burial place ready to set up. So I gotta give full credit to Merlin. I have Merlin's back on this one. Mm -hmm. I think it was a good call to make the men try to move him first. Yeah, okay. Because I think you're, if he just walked over there and just, you know, picked him up with magic, like the French version says, or he just uh -huh. busts out this machine and starts yeah. doing it, yeah. then they're like, oh, this one wimp could move it. Like, why do we even need him in the first place? But as long as they know, like, these are immovable, now they can value this guy's skill. That's true. It's, it's part of his calculated rise to power, I think. Yeah, maybe he has a yeah. teaching degree. Maybe he knows something. <laughs> or, or like, uh, He's like, I want you to experience for yourself yeah. how, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Props. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we're almost to the end of, of the story here. Great. All right. So the king is super psyched about Merlin's total success, right? And Uther's. And so he calls together all his posse, right? All his, um, and he starts to hand out titles and every, lands and everything from everything that was ravaged by the Saxons. So he's mm -hmm. setting everything aright and setting up kind of a, a government. Right. <clears throat> and then comes the big moment of Stonehenge. And when he had settled these and other matters in his realm, he bade Merlin set up the stones that he had brought from Ireland around the burial place. Merlin accordingly obeyed his ordinance and set them up about the compass of the burial ground in such wise as they had stood upon Mount Calaris in Ireland and proved yet once again how skill surpasseth strength. 
Nerd wins. (laughs) (laughs) Because Joffrey's writing this. Is he a jock? No. Right. That's a good point. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do we know, is there any, uh, I mean, obviously Stonehenge didn't come from Ireland. We know that now. But where where could this story have come from? I mean, is is there some part of Stonehenge that, like, this particular kind of rock, maybe it did come from Ireland, or was there some Irish connection? Well, so Burl uh, speculates um, that Calaris might, or Mount Calaris, whatever the name is, Mm -hmm. he has some kind of a linguistic connection that he draws rather tenuously to... Um, something like Kildare in Ireland. Sure, okay. But it might have actually referred to something in Wales that was closer to the... Oh, real, uh, okay. But I don't know. Okay. It seems like kind of a stretch it's to me, stretch, but I'm not yeah. an archaeologist, so right. whatever. Okay, and here, of course, you can see um, people of Jeffrey's time totally reading into Stonehenge exactly what they want to see. Like, they're making yeah. their, like, epic founding myth of their people almost, yes. uh, like, rooted in Stonehenge. Like, right. this is our thing, guys. Is our thing. Yeah. It's totally our thing. And I, I would add, too, I mean, it's it's very politicized because we, you know, we just did this short little part of the story, but if I remember correctly, the reason that there were all these massacred bodies there was because Hengist, the Saxon leader, pretended he was going to make peace with the Britons and invited them all to a feast. Uh-huh, and then yes. when they had the feast, again, it's just like Game of Thrones. Yep. Spoiler alert. Once <laughs> they had the feast, everybody in Hengist's group pulled out a knife and stabbed the British guy next to him. And they just slayed a bunch of British leaders at, like, at a dinner yeah. table, basically. That does sound yeah. right. So it's like one big story. We're like, okay, yeah. first of all, the Saxons are horrible. We're awesome. And, you know, this we put this up to commemorate how awful the Saxons are and how great yeah. we are. But interestingly, at Joffrey's time in actual history, his culture is the Saxons. Is the Saxons. Right, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. But they're kind of like forging an identity that's going back even further and linked to the exactly. British land, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's sort of just like, I mean, so I spent a lot of time in Mexico, and most people in Mexico are not descended from the Aztecs, uh-huh. but the culture thinks of itself strongly yeah. as descended from the Aztecs. It makes sense. Because that is before the conquest that goes way back into this glorious past. Yeah. And I think it's a similar thing. Like, we want to connect ourselves to the oldest lineage in our, our nation. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so speeding along, okay, so that was like 1136 um, CE, right? Uh, AD, okay. Um, So in the 14th century, we start to see um, some pious citizens. By this time, everybody in England's Christian, very Christianized nation by that time. Um, Pious Christian citizens of Avebury, which is a village with a stone circle that's near to Stonehenge, but a different one. Um, they're burying many of the stones, apparently to depaganize the site. Oh, okay. Or maybe to clear farmland. Right. And this becomes like a whole big thing. And this goes on apparently for a while because um, later in the 1600s, people are still doing this. And, and there's even like an outbreak of almost kind of like a fundamentalist fervor in the Avebury village of like trying to destroy these stones. It's almost, it's ve- I see it very similar to what we had recently in Afghanistan when the Taliban was right. in power with the, they were using like the rockets to destroy the old Buddhist huge rock sculptures. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of having that kind of a rash breakout in Britain in the 1600s, um, which will split, speed along to presently. Hmm. Uh, in 1655, Inigo Jones, best name ever. Indigo Jones? Inigo. Inigo. Inigo Jones. Best name ever after Wally Wallington. Second best yeah, name ever. Yeah, yeah. Those two should get married. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Inigo and Jones, but a- actually it's probably his his apprentice or, or student, um, John Webb, that's actually writing his name, but anyway, mm. whatever. He writes a book called The Vindication of Stonehenge Restored, arguing that Stonehenge was actually a Roman temple to Calus, which is not the Klingon god that we okay. all know and love from, not god, but hero <laughs> from Star Trek. Not that, just sounds the same. Calus was actually a Latin go- cognate god to Uranus, from which we get the, mm. the planet named Uranus. Um, and uh, the fact that they attributed it to a pagan source is going to be relevant very shortly here. Okay. Uh, moving on, uh, John. we get John Aubrey, 1640. Oh, I jumped a little bit in this timeline, but whatever. Okay. John Aubrey... Um, does the first measure drawings, just basically the first actual trying to figure out Stonehenge in a scientific way. He does okay. measure drawings of it. He's um, like, I just want a blueprint of this place, yeah. is what he's saying. But he, but he, he, finds, he finds that there's this astronomical and calendrical association, and he thinks that it was built by the Druids. Okay. 
which is kind of believable at that time, right? Now That's we know, yes. no. Yeah. Yeah. But at the He's time... He's like, it's really old. Yeah. Druids used to be here. Deal. Caesar said the Druids came from here. True. Yeah. yeah. And they had classical texts, you know, so... Yeah. Okay. And so then John Aubrey um, also sees this these fundamentalists totally just busting up the Avery stones. Not Stonehenge, Ooh. but, you know, yeah. Stonehenge could imminently suffer a similar fate, right? right? And uh, so this is like a tragedy to him because he loves this stuff. He's actually studying it, right? Um, and he quotes another guy telling him how they do it. So this is interesting. I have verbum sacerdotis, um, which I forgot to look up what that does, but it, sacerdotis like priests, priest, right? Yeah. So like like kind the of word the, the priest, verbum yeah. sacerdotis. So in other words, kind of like it sounds like I have it on good word. Right, yeah. Yeah, for, yeah that's exactly right. <clears throat> nice. Yeah. I have verbum sacerdotis for it that these mighty stones, as hard as marble, may be broken in what pot of them you please without any great trouble. Make a fire on that line of the stone where you would have it crack, and after the stone is well heated, draw over a line with cold water and immediately give a knock with a smith's sledge, and it will break like the collets at the glass house. Wow, so they had a whole method for debasing these things. Yes. That's really brilliant, actually. Yeah. Now, I didn't read anything that indicated that Stonehenge suffered a similar fate. Right. But you could see it happening. There's definitely probably the fear there. Right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, moving along. Uh, next, we get William Stukeley. Okay. And William Stukeley, I, I love him. Not a bad name, either. We yeah, have a lot also, of cool names yeah, in this a lot episode. of cool names here. Yeah. Okay. So, William Stukeley is writing now in 1740. Okay, so like about well, 100 years later. Right. And he, he finds the writings from John Aubrey and just falls in love with them, right? Um, and he, so he's just, he loves this British heritage. He loves these megaliths and trying to figure out, figure out what's going on with them. He loves the writings of Aubrey about him. Mm -hmm. But in just shortly after, he's going to become like a Christian fundamentalist zealot. And this is going to cause a major, like, as I see it, I'm psychoanalyzing him here, but is this going to cause like some major cognitive dissonance for him? Right. Okay. So uh, he starts out as a guy, like I said, who's just interested in this, and he totally buys into the whole dru druidic origin story. Okay. Um, but then he takes holy orders in 1743, and then his writings about um, the druids change significantly. They take on a whole different character. He imagines. Uh, that there was this guy, he's kind of thinking back in historical times how Stonehenge was built, that there was this guy that he calls the Tyrian Hercules, who was a Phoenician mariner who had um, a golden cup, and he's like getting this from the myths, from the Greeks, actually. But he thinks this was a compass box, okay. an actual like magnetic compass box. Maybe like wow. the cup is like had water in it, and you put the lodestone oh, in sure, it. Oh, sure, right. Maybe. I think that's what he's inferring. Um and that uh, he was an awesome dude and basically went, got kicked out of the Mediterranean region um, and then came to Britain and ended up building Stonehenge, right? But here's huh. the part that, that figures in to the Christianity bit, okay? So he loves the Stonehenge stuff, sees fundamentalist Christians, you know, busting up these megaliths, but he's also himself now, like, totally into the Christianity stuff and, you know, trying to reconcile these. So in his mind, he figures these druids were not pagans. Yes. They were actually like proto-Christians. Right. Not not Christians, but like pre-Christians of the Abrahamic lineage. Right. So maybe yeah. not exactly Jews, but like people of the book that came before. Jewids. Jewids, yes, they were Jewids. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He calls them uh, patriarchal, uh, I forget what, what, some, but something to do with the patriarchs, the ancient patriarchs. Right. Yeah. So this is funny because that idea still persists to this day. There yeah. are still people who try to spin the ancient Druids as having had sort of like a, a foreshadowing of what Christianity would be and embracing it even before Jesus's word arrived. Mm -hmm. And there's also a whole lot of really um, inaccurate work done to try to like trace the ancient Celts to like the ancient Hebrews and that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. And I've always looked at that kind of misinformation as just like, ugh, you know, just like, just nonsense. But I like that somebody made it up specifically to try to save Stonehenge. I mean, that kind of redeems yeah. it in my mind. Now that, that's partly my speculation that that was his motivation, but it totally mm. makes sense to me. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he says that these, this, this, this Druidic religion of the patriarchs 
is, was so extremely like Christianity that, in effect, it differed from it only in this. They believed in a Messiah who was to come into this world as we believe in him that is come. Or in other words, that has already come. And just for the record, from everything we know about the ancient Druids and the religion of the Celts, that is bullshit. Yes. But nothing... I like that he made it up to try right. to you know reconcile this. Right, right. Cool. he's reconciling yeah. here. I also, this is totally wild speculation here. Really going off the deep end here. But So he's imagining a pre-Christian people, but he doesn't say that they're Jews. Right. And let's remember that pretty much throughout almost all of European history, anti-Semitism was almost the norm, right? right? Yeah. So I have to kind of wonder, like, was he kind of setting up, like, a possible different, like, pre-Christian tradition to, like, be in substitute for the Jews oh, or something and be like, oh, no, the British were just as good as the Jews. And we were, yeah, we were there, too. We had, we're equal to the Jews, except not Jewish. Right. Yay. We and get to not be Jewish. Just to be clear, the medieval folklore firmly stated that Jesus was British. <laughs> that is a, they uh, had a whole it? story. Yeah, they had a whole story that, okay. how does it work? That the, that Mary's mother, I think, uh -huh. uh, had been from Britain. And she was a virtuous okay. queen or a virtuous wife of a chief uh -huh. of, a, of a pagan, you know, world in ancient Britain. Uh, but that she was so pious and she rejected the paganism around her, knowing there was something greater, mm -hmm. that an angel came and transported her via a ship through the heavens mm -hmm. and put her down in the Middle East so that her daughter Mary could bear the child of God. Oh. So that was the, and even into the late medieval period, and there's even a, a reference in one of the, I think it's, um, what's the jousting movie? A uh, Knight's Tale. Okay. There's even a fun scene. It's this comedy movie about jousting. It's like a okay. sports movie about jousting. Okay. There's a fun scene where all the jousting guys are arguing in a pub, and like the French guys are telling the British guys, and the British guys say, yeah, well, Jesus was British, so F you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that's great. Yeah, there's actually even, um, there's some Christians in North Japan that believe Jesus was buried there in North Japan. <laughs> Somehow his yes. body made it that far. He, I don't know if he was still alive. In that, I don't know. Right. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I would love I to collect all of these to... geographically yeah. impossible stories. So, yeah. That no, should be that a different kind episode. Of stuff happens. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole different episode. When Jesus was English. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, all right. So that's Stukely. So there again, you can totally see Jaquetta Cox quote, every age has the Stonehenge it deserves or desires. He's definitely seeing what he wants to see definitely. in Stonehenge. Yeah. It's like this mirror. This is like dark, forbidding mirror that you gaze into. Right. And then you like you see a reflection of your own psyche back, you know? I don't want to... I don't think I want to go to Stonehenge we anymore. Should, we should go to Stonehenge, and then we should make a new legend about where it came from that's just unique to our time. I think all we're going to see is, like, Dungeons & Dragons adventures in it. <laughs> I'm down with that. We should we should ceremonially play Dungeons & Dragons at Stonehenge. Yeah. It, okay, so so the Stonehenge was built by the first role players. <laughs> they, they, no, even better, they were the first LARPers. Oh yeah, yeah. Definitely. they had to build their sets, yes. right? And then <laughs> and then they had their play sword fights with like their foam swords and everything. <laughs> right, their foam copper swords. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay, all right. So moving along, moving along, we're gonna speed on a little bit. Um, next, we're gonna zoom on to. We're gonna go all the way to W. S. Blackett. This is eighteen eighty three now. Yeah, eighteen eighty three. The Victorian Stonehenge now. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And by the way, uh, just a little tidbit, um, uh, uh, the whole Phoenician origin story is really popular um, right now for the origin of where the British people came from in the Victorian huh. period. Um, oh, we had a little cool. bit of that that we saw with the Tyrian Hercules coming, well, being a Phoenician and coming from the Mediterranean. Um, and I'm sure that like lots of people found that to be like BS or whatever. But still the idea that they could have migrated from Phoenicia and have been originally Phoenician people was kind of a thing. It was, it was a popular thing at the time. Okay. Anyway, so W.S. Blackett, 1883, writes, Researchers into the lost history of America or the Zodiac shown to be an old terrestrial map in which the Atlantic Isle is delineated. And by Atlantic Isle, he does mean Atlantis. Atlantis. Yes. So it's a map of Atlantis. Yes. Yes, the Zodiac is. I, oh, excellent. Got yeah. it. Yeah, it is this whole crazy thing about how, like, 
if you take one sign of the zodiac, which is kind of like as a calendar, it's like in a wheel, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and you match it to any place, basically any place, mm -hmm. um, on on the actual like geography, actual geographic map of um, Earth. Uh, of Earth. Okay. Yes. And then you look at how the all other ones line up with the places that are that are associated with where they fall on this ring. I don't know how you decide how big the ring is. <laughs> but somehow it's like everything falls in. Like the bull, like the bull is totally in Spain and everything, you know. He's all these, he's like, oh. So the goes, points of the stars corresponded to geographical features. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, it, it gets, it gets deep. So then what do you do that? Is Atlantis like in the middle of the ring? of the Somehow it works out that Atlantis is actually the Americas. Uh, that's kind of disappointing. It's like a, it's like <laughs> <anticlimactic>. <laughs> You want it to be a real magical island. I want it to be like, yeah, song. exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, if we're going that far, right. the Zodiac is a key yeah. to a map of Well, Earth. he doesn't think he's going that far. In <laughs> fact, he's like super smug about it, which you're going to see in just a second. <laughs> like, clearly, when yeah, you no, put this on the map. You're not kidding. You're oh not kidding. God. No, no. Okay, so he thinks, he thinks that Appalachian Native Americans, the mound building culture, oh, okay, okay. which that yeah. does link to the, to the barrows and things, sure, right? You yeah. can see a connection. Cross the Atlantic and build in Britain, build Stonehenge there. And he thought that these Americans were the Atlanteans, and he connects the word Atlantis to Atlanteides, meaning children of Atlas, mm -hmm. which is clearly related to the Me Mexican god Aztlan. <laughs> so take that back to Mexico with you. <laughs> wow, I'll ask about that one down there. Yeah, okay. Um, okay, so he thinks that. It was Native Americans that, that built Stonehenge. Okay. Just, just for the record, and I think, given the kind of person who would listen to this show, I don't think this has to be said, but if you're out there, if you're listening, uh -huh. and you, you like these word games, yeah. right? I just wanted to be clear that when two words sound alike to a modern <laughs> English ear, it does not mean they share the same root, right. you know? You, you have to do a whole series of very rigorous kind of analyses in order to establish any kind of connection. Yes, yeah. 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 Oftentimes, the root of a word doesn't even sound the same phonetically as the current word does. Yeah, and so then there's false cognates to, many. to mix it up. I mean, there's only so many sounds yeah. the human mouth can make. It's coincidence. Okay, sorry. Yeah, okay. Moving on. Okay, so as I said, he's super smug. He thinks that he's being totally rational he's right, yeah. about this. So he says, he writes in his book, to find the birth of Apollo in, remember, Apollo is associated with Stonehenge at this point. The birth of Apollo in the mound cities of North America is to supply a natural and credible explanation of the mystery of Stonehenge. The Appalachian Indians are said to have erected altars and to have massed heaps of stones wherever they found in colonies, and they must have carried with them the religion of their race. So actually, he thinks not only did they build Stonehenge, but actually this mound builder's religion is the origin of the Greek gods. Like, they brought their religion to Europe... And that was the genesis of Greek right. myths. Okay. So Athena is like Navajo. Something like that. Yeah. She's Navajo. Navajo so he gets, he gets even more smug about this. He says, So effectually have the ancients shrouded their national histories by the veil of mystification that it requires some courage to propound a natural interpretation of their funny stories. One has to get off his stilts, become a babe, that he may be wise. Throw away the prejudice of scholastic education and bend some close attention to the subject in undertaking the task. Wow. But the game is worth the candle. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the other phrase that I'm definitely going to use in the daily conversation this candle. week. Yeah, the game is worth the candle. <laughs> I love that he thinks he's like debunking all the BS yeah. myths in Stonehenge. Yeah, he's, he's like, like, I've got oh the, the rational one. Yeah, come on, guys. But do you, okay, right. honest opinion, Brandon. Do yeah. you think that he is saying this, writing it with a straight face, like he really believes it? Or do you think he's a showman and he's like, oh, I'm totally going to convince people? I don't, I don't know enough about him. All I could find out about him, and this was surprising to me, because reading this, I thought for sure he was going to be from... America, right? A new nation looking to establish long roots. Right, right. Just like Joffrey rooting yeah. himself in, you know, and the Mexicans rooting himself in the Aztecs, right? Right. No, he was English. He was an English tailor. And that's all that I could find about him. They did have a lot of fascination with the Native Americans at that time, in the mm -hmm. late 1800s. So, yeah. I mean, and cowboys also. 
Mm-hmm. I yeah. recently read the actual, the original yeah. Dracula book, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize until I read the book that one yeah. of the main characters is a cowboy. I just found out that They're too. Like, That's oh, crazy. Some guy from Texas. How Dracula? come he's never in the movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't. He kill him in the end. He kills. Dracula I think he's the, the one. He like shoots him dead. Yeah, or something. He shoots him. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. They loved it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> okay. 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 Moving on from W. S. Blackett. Okay. This is gonna be have have to be. Uh, we're gonna have to get to the last one. Got it now. Okay. So. Um, we're going to s- smooth through a bunch of them real quickly. Um, we get Alfred Watkins with Ley Lines. Okay. Um, that's in 1922. Which are like lines of energy that run through the whole Earth. No. No. Not yet. Oh, okay. That comes in the 60s. At the time that Alfred Watkins was writing, he just looked at a map with dots of all these um, ancient megalithic structures, mounds, and and also like cathedrals and things. And he just noticed, wait a minute, if I stick a pin in one of these on the map and then take a straight edge and circle it around, hmm. eventually I find lines where four or more of these things line up. And that can't be a coincidence. <laughs> right. Actually, it's in point of fact, it's a, yeah. <laughs> he's just, he's, he was operating in a time before statistics was a thing. Right. Right. You see all um, these straight lines and you're like, well, that's got to be intentional. Yeah. yeah. No, I saw, I saw a graphic online. An image that had, uh, what was it, like 180, no wait, there's 137 random dots, and that manages to generate 80 four-point connections among them. Wow. In With just 137 So it's not even unlikely. Dots. It's not it's, even hard it, to do. It's actually just what's probably going to happen. Right. Yeah. These but <laughs> he thinks he's really found something. Of course. And here's the thing. Um, so he thinks he's found something, and he thinks that these are just trackways, like the ways that Neolithic people navigated. Basically, they would find oh, these high okay. points draw straight lines between them, and and then that's how they would kind of get from place to place. And these monuments would be, these stone circles would be like, um, like almost like waypoints. Yeah, the waypoints. Way. They yeah. like the, the same function as beacons for seafarers. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, but here's the thing. He crowdsources his research. So he, he publishes and he writes, hey, guys, hey, people, you can do this too. Here's my method with the map and the straight edge. Do this until you find like four or more um, hooking up, right? And then you might have found one of these ancient trackways, hmm. which he called ley lines. And then you can go, and he said he recommends kind of the um, dusk time because the shadows will be longer, and you might even see, you might just be able to find the traces left over of ancient kind of, you know, trails. Oh. So imagine you see the marking in the earth of like this is a little bit higher, straighter. At that point, archaeology goes you as you as the one reading the archaeological text you go from being a consumer to a participant <laughs> imagine how infectious oh. that is and it in an goes age before social media this is unusual to become a participant in the no, read. but it goes viral yeah it does. yeah and yeah. this becomes a big thing and then in the 60s it becomes like spiritual energy and it's like oh ugh, whatever right yeah, but it wasn't originally that so ley lines were originally just coincidental trackways that don't exist between the monuments. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, he didn't think they were coincidental. Of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, and then, speaking of 60s, then we get guys like John Mitchell, who kind of is what took the ley lines and made it about flying saucers. And you get like Von Danigan with the Chariots of the Gods. And uh, we don't even is need Is that to... the aliens? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it. he thinks it was a landing pad. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he thinks Stonehenge was a landing pad. He also thinks it was a map of of the five inner planets of the solar system, the ones that you would be visible that would be right, visible okay. to the naked eye. Yeah. Um, with the different rings, those are like their orbits. He thinks it's proportionate, so he thinks it's a map, and also he thinks it's also a signal to outer space that there's intelligent life here. I just love the idea. I just I just love the reasoning going in this person's mind of yeah. like I believe that there are aliens who were able to travel through space in ships that <laughs> yeah. came from another solar system, from other stars. Yeah. And they have fuel and they have oxygen or whatever gas they breathe. Yeah. And they, they survived meteors and radiation mm-hmm. and you know, all this technology. And they get here, they're like, well, we need a landing pad. <laughs> well, let's have the locals put up some gravestones in a circle. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> and that'll be our beacon to space, too, while we're at it. Oh, man. Uh... Or maybe he thought the spaceships were made of stone. I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe they were rock aliens. They're rock. Maybe they were. Maybe the Stone Stonehenge Are is the aliens. The aliens. They're yeah, they're just asleep. Shades of two thousand one. Oh, yeah. wow! Figured it out. Uh, once that more. might be my new theory on Stonehenge. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. rock aliens. Exactly. Totally rock aliens. Yeah. I'm gonna download their information on my yeah. iPhone. I like how like 
there's clearly like big men, the aliens too, because there's two standing up and one that gets to lay on top of them, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe yeah. those are families. Maybe. It could be families. Okay, the last guy that I want to bring in here, um, just real quick. Okay, yeah. super, super quick. Give us the tweet of the what you're saying. The tweet of it. Okay. So, there's a guy, um, 2003, I think he came out with this idea, something like that. And his name is Stephen J. Waller. He does have a PhD. I don't think he is a professor anywhere. Okay. Um, but, you know, he studied at University of Virginia. And he thinks that Stonehenge has something to do with acoustic interference patterns. Okay. What he means by acoustic interference patterns is um, if you play a note, mm -hmm. okay, say, for example, on a bagpipe, just sustaining one note, because yeah. you can do that with a bagpipe, yes. right? You can just sustain it for a long time. Right. It's it's making these concentric circles radiating out from you, right? Like the sound waves are circles radiating. The sound waves. Out. Okay, yes. Right? Then, if another piper does the same thing near you and plays the same note, it oh, that person also is making concentric circles. But now they're moving so they're toward each other. They're colliding. Right. Just like if you're at a lake and you drop two pebbles well, yeah. in, then the concentric circles are kind of mess with each other, right? right There's going right. to be points where they intersect. Hmm. And and this part is scientific here that it, you the points where it where they intersect they interfere with each other and cause variations in volume. Got it. It'll start to get quieter and louder and quieter and louder. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now here's the part where it starts to go off the rails a little bit in my opinion. Um, so he did this study where he asked um, participants, and they were these were artists. I guess, or they'd gone through some kind of art class or something. They have some level of artistic ability. Hmm. And he asked them to close their eyes, and and then he uses a tuning fork, um, and the two tines are interfering with each other. Okay. And he asked them... Oh, because he's rotating yeah. the forks, and the interference patterns are changing, so yeah. the volume is different in their I'm ears. confusing this a little bit with a, thing, a demonstration he did on YouTube that I saw. Okay. But anyway, he asked these artists to listen to the sounds with the interference patterns, the volumes going up and down, and then depict artistically on a canvas what they think um, it felt like was interfering. This is the right? dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so he, I'm going back to aliens so, over here. <laughs> so, they make, so they make these kind of chicken scratchy kind of... I didn't, and you get to see right. the images on that video I was talking about. He kind of held it up a little bit. Right. And it looked like kind of chicken scratches kind of in a vaguely circular pattern and then a red circle drawn on top of it. Okay. And Mr. Waller, I'm sorry if I'm making a total travesty and misunderstood the drawing and it was much cooler than I than it seemed like, but okay. So he interprets this as they thought that it was kind of like big rocks that were interfering with it. <laughs> okay. And maybe that's partly what some of them might have said that even. Okay. So his theory is that pipers and he in it's crucial to the story that they must have had bagpipers or something right. that can do the sustainable. Which they did, and I will back say the, then, even in the Neolithic, they did actually the well in the Bronze Age, which you said is when they erected the last stones. Oh, that's a good point. So in the Bronze okay. Age, they actually had um, horns made of bronze, which uh -huh. did not have the bags on them yet, mm -hmm. um, and they also had like smaller, like kind of the pipe of a bag, of a bagpipe shaped mm -hmm. ones. Yeah, and. They were played with circular breathing. Okay, yeah. It would make a droning noise. Okay. And they would actually, it even had one that I think was two different pipes you'd have in your mouth. So just like the bagpipe setup, where you have yeah. two different tones and you yeah. can modulate what you're doing. So they could have made the sounds he's talking about. Okay. And held them for long periods of time. Okay. But um, yeah. the rest of okay. what he's saying. So now here, so here's, here's the thing. He thinks that back then, like, they knew about this trick that you could do. Probably thought it was some kind of magical or spiritual ability that these musicians had, um, where you would have these kind of strange variations in volume as you walked around the two pipers doing this. Okay. And he imagines that they must have imagined, like these artists, that it was like these stones inter interfering, but they were like spiritual like invisible stones. stones. Invisible spiritual stones. Right. And then, from that, they got the idea to build the stones for real. Right. And that's Stonehenge. Wow. So this falls into my favorite fallacy. This is my <laughs> favorite of all fallacies, is the idea that because um, ancient people couldn't have explained a given phenomenon, that yeah. they must have thought that phenomenon was magical or supernatural. Uh -huh. And that's just not always the case. Now, there's plenty of cases where they did think some natural phenomenon was supernatural. 
But there's also plenty where they didn't. And in fact, most of the technology that, that ancient people used, mm -hmm. they didn't understand the physics behind it work, how it worked. Yeah. Smelting metal when they got to that point. Yeah. You know, in the in the Middle East, they actually uh, used a primitive form of electroplating mm -hmm. metals, mm -hmm. and they had to make like a essentially like an acidic, you know, like a battery in order to, to electroplate things. Mm -hmm. And they had no idea how that worked. It must mm -hmm. have seemed like magic, but none of their folk tales, none of their magical ceremonies from that time period, none of them mentioned this as if it was some spiritual okay. phenomenon. Okay. Yeah. So ancient people were happy to look at something that seemed, you know, like you could touch it with your hands, you could uh -huh. reproduce it and say, well, that's just how it works. They didn't yeah, always yeah. assume yeah, this yeah. was a spirit or magic, you know. Yeah. So I think if you're walking around two bagpipers and the, the sound gets louder and quieter, yeah. it would be reasonable to say, well, I'm walking around them. I'm yeah. facing a different way. My ear is facing a different way compared to them. They wouldn't have understood the acoustic interference, but yeah. they could have easily just said, uh, that's how bagpipes work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> it's louder like, over here. It's quieter over there. You're like, know? what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, well, anyway, yeah. 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 So that's where we're going to leave it off. We're going to yeah. leave it off there for today. And uh, we're just about at the right amount of time, but, but just to cap it off. Okay, so we've been talking about ginormous stone circles, right? Megalithic culture that was all over prehistoric Europe. And then the stone circles in particular were all over Britain and Ireland and Brittany, which is a little part of France that was across the channel from Britain. Um, 1,300 stone circles got built over the course of like 2,000 years between right. the Neolithic and the Bronze Age. Um, and then Stonehenge. And, you know, and that's all you got to say, right? Stonehenge, right? So just briefly, Andre, just to cap it off, the legacy of Stonehenge, the influence, the lasting influence that Stonehenge has had on the culture, I don't know. What do you got to say? What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, we've seen all these ways that people have looked at it. And it's still a magical place to us today, too, right? Right. Yeah. That's a really big question. Um, you know, I guess... The thing that strikes me about it, knowing that we've gone through all the crackpot theories yeah. and knowing that I'm going to do my best not to just see ourselves in it, uh -huh. but maybe I will a little bit. Okay, Dungeons and Dragons. A little bit of D&D going on here. Yeah. Um, I just, I love the idea that at some point they built the original henge. Uh -huh. well, I shouldn't say henge. The original up upright wooden pillars right. as like the outline of a roundhouse. Yes. Which is exactly what they would have used for their homes and potentially for temple-like buildings. That's exactly a very good point. And yeah. then they went Bill and makes the same replicated. The, it, it went from being an actual roundhouse in the circle mm -hmm. to being the wooden skeleton of a roundhouse. Yep. To then being like, we're just going to replace the wooden beam. We're sick of switching them out every 20 right. years when they rot. We're just going to put some stones where they were yeah. and build this like stone abstract of a circle. Of a, yeah. Sorry, a stone abstract of a roundhouse. It's basically... Right? Uh, like the the frame of a house. It's the frame of a house. Yeah, and I just I love that so much because it's this it speaks to this very abstract artistic ability mm -hmm. that humanity has in all ages. Yeah, and we look at like you know abstract artists being this very modern thing. Like you know it didn't happen until Montmartre in in the early twentieth century when these brilliant artists were thinking like what if I don't make the person look like a person? What if I give him a blue face or have his arm come off at a weird angle? <laughs> and we have this origin of these beautiful abstract ideas. But you can go back to the artwork of the Iron Age Celts, of the Bronze Age, all the way back to etchings in stone from the Neolithic period, yeah. and see these very abstract designs like, is the swirl supposed to be the sun? Is it supposed to be mm -hmm. a spirit? It, what is it? It's just mm -hmm. a cool-looking pattern. And that idea of just abstract it, it's thinking. It's the sun with all the five planets. Of course, you know, with That's the five planets, and it's That's a map it of, yeah, yeah, exactly. So the idea that they were like, you know, we can make a, an abstract representation of a house, and that that had such a significance to them. Yeah. That's what I really like about it. That is so cool, here right? I am seeing 21st century abstract yeah. art in 3100 BC, yeah. and that is me seeing myself in Stonehenge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that's the perfect way to cap it off because that's totally on our theme, right, of Chiquetta Hawk's awesome saying that we all get the stone hedge that we deserve or desire. Right. Right. Yes. So. I don't know whether I deserve it, but I at least deserve I it. deserve the one where we get to fight in the middle of it and just, like, <laughs> fight orcs or something. That's that's the one I deserve. <laughs> Which actually, this so this is my question for you, Brandon. Uh -huh. So quick quick vote. You know, yeah. we just went through, like, a half dozen or more wrong theories about <laughs> where Stonehenge came from. Which one is your favorite? Which do you award the best origin theory of Stonehenge? I always award the best theory to whichever scholar I have read most recently. Okay. So that would be Aubrey Burrell. Okay. Who, who thinks, basically we were following Aubrey Burrell whole, all of last episode, basically, and that it, that it was this thing that had this ritual purpose. 
um, and, and that changing ideas of culture and religiosity led to the changes in the, the phases. Um, but next year I'm probably going to read something about how it was actually about like, uh, I don't know, like the Sumerians, uh, the Sumerians, <laughs> or or maybe you know it was it was something like um, I don't know like a bouncy castle for for stone for the... it used to be bouncy before yeah. the cement hardens. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were just like let's let's take the foundations of a bouncy castle and um, immortalize them in stone <laughs> without the bounce. Yeah, yeah. Without... safer that way. Yeah, it's spiritual bounce. At it's that spiritual point. bounce. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you bounce in spirit. Yeah. I will say that my <laughs> vote, I, I always have to side with Merlin. I'm going to give it to Merlin showboating off to yes. his fellow Britons and yes. saying, you try and move it. Oh, now let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> nerd, hashtag nerd wins. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> okay, that's all the time we got. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, Andre, for being on the show. Absolutely. It was awesome. Everybody, be sure to check him out at roguepriest.net. Yeah. And he's the awesomest guy I know. And uh, and if you like things that vaguely relate to ancient harvest gods and weird <laughs> stuff like that, check out my novel, uh, Lunacy Days, which is available on Amazon.com or find it on my website. Do it. Um, also, be sure to rate us and, re and review us on iTunes. Write in by email. If you have a dead idea you want us to explore, we want to hear it. So please write in and tell us. All right, everybody. It's been fun. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, we're doing a special promo where the first 20 people who review us get their picture drawn in the historical time period and culture of their choosing. We've got some of our first drawings up now. You can go to deadideas.net to the supporters page and see Jen Graneman as a 20th century American Rosie the Riveter. You can see Brendan Myers as an Iron Age Celtic explorer time-traveled to the present. That's what he requested. We're not above having fun with history, and it, it relates to his novels, I guess, so check that out. You can also see Matt Langdon's daughter as a 15th century French attendant of Joan of Arc. Now, that, that was a real challenge. Turns out I am not good at drawing little girls' faces. Uh, she's such a cute little girl, but I totally mangled my first attempt. It came out looking like Warwick Davis from the movie Willow. But in the end, I think we got there, so check it out. You can also see Anna's first drawings. She's got her first drawings in. I requested that she draw me as a Civil War hottie. <laughs> and I couldn't be happier with the results. Her style is just totally different than mine, and it's absolutely awesome. So check that out, Anna's artwork. Your portrait could be next, so leave us a review. And then send us an email with a photo that we can work from and your choice of time period and culture, and we'll draw you. Also, I know that some people have been having problems with iTunes being a stinker. Sometimes reviews mysteriously never post. So if, if you're having trouble or whatever, just post your review to Stitcher, Facebook, your own website, whatever. Send us the link. We'll honor it, and we'll draw you an awesome portrait. Okay, that's it for this week, everybody. So see you next week for Public Domain Theater 3000, where we continue our Neolithic theme with an article that gives us a peek at what people in the 1800s thought about prehistoric people. It should be interesting, if nothing else. All right, see you later, everybody.